Can we give Jesus a hand of praise this morning? Jesus, we love you. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we are grateful that you are in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated this morning. New Life Second Service, how are you doing today? Are you guys excited to be in the house of the Lord? How many of you brought your Bibles this morning? If you have your Bibles, lift your Bibles in the air. Let me see them. Look around, look around. I know I'm in the right place. Praise the Lord. Wonderful. Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. Before we dive into the passage, I want to pray. Uh, I want to say I'm so uh, thankful. Uh, I love Pastor Steve and Pastor Tammy so much. And as we uh, dive into the message, I would just want to take a moment to pray for them. And um, would you join me in that? Father, we come before you, God. We lift up Pastor Steve to you. God, we thank you that you are a God who walks with us through every circumstance. So Lord, I pray this morning that they would know that their church family loves them and is praying for them. Lord, we pray for continual healing and strength and grace for the whole family. Father, for those of us here this morning, as we open up your word, give us ears to hear what you want to speak to our hearts. Change our lives, we pray. Pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And everyone says, amen. amen. Well, this morning, as I was praying about what the Lord would have me share, I, there was a topic that came to mind, and I thought to myself, if, if I share this topic, I'm really taking a risk. Because I'm not sure anybody in this room has ever, at any point in their life, had to deal with going through difficult times. That's the title of the message this morning. Getting through difficult times. And I want to begin with a story, a story that's about 2,600 years old. 2,600 years ago, there was a Greek slave who was old but wise. And he would tell these stories to his children. And these stories got passed down to pass, uh, passed down and they got passed down today. The, his name was Aesop. Aesop's stories or Aesop's fables. And one of the stories that he shared went like this. That there were four oxen that were friends. They got along. They spent time together. They all ate in the same pasture on the same hill. And one day there was a lion who was hungry that came into the field. But when the lion approached the oxen, what the oxen would do is they would back their tails together. So every direction... Their, their horns were pointed out. So it didn't matter which direction the lion came, the lion met one of the horns of the oxen. Well, the story goes on that over time, these four friends, these four oxen, they began to quarrel. They began to fight. They began to not get along. They began to talk behind each other's backs. And eventually, they all decided to go their own way, each one to a corner of the field. So later on when the lion came, the lion noticed that they weren't all together, but that they had separated. And one by one, the lion was able to pick them off. He had a great lunch that day, and he had his full. And what was the moral of the story? That united we stand, but divided we fall. United we stand, but divided we fall. My friends, this is true for church communities. 
This is true for families. This is true for marriages. That united we stand, but divided we fall. Unity is important. It's important for at least two reasons. Number one, unity is something that Jesus prayed for his church. Did you know that? Here's a verse coming up. It's in John 14. Jesus is praying, and this is what the scripture says. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. Did you know that Jesus is praying that his church would be unified? Did you know that Jesus wants your family to be unified, your marriage to be unified, the relationships in your life to be unified? It's important not only because it's something that he prays for, but it's a gift that he gives to the church. Here's a verse coming up on the screen. Paul wrote this to the book, uh, to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 4.3. It says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I love what it says. It doesn't say make every effort to create a sense of unity. What does it say? Make every effort to keep a sense of unity, to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. How, how do we understand this? Well, one of the best illustrations I've come across, if we want to understand unity for the church, we've got to understand the difference between marbles and magnets. Marbles and magnets. Now imagine with me if we had a table and on this table there was all of these marbles, different colors, different sizes, right? And we took all of these marbles and we put them in a bag. So there are many individual marbles that are distinct, but they're all unified. They're all together. They're all in one bag. And many churches are like this bag of marbles. You see, they're, they're united by, by something on the outside. Now imagine with me if we took a knife and we just put a little tear in that bag, what would happen to the marbles? All of the marbles would fall out. My friends, I, I have been working with churches and I remember working with a church, worshiping with them. They all looked unified. They sounded unified. They looked the same, they dressed the same, they had the same worship preferences. And then within a couple weeks, persecution came, there was a tear and all of a sudden there was a massive church split. Why? Because their unity, what kept them together, wasn't something on the inside, it was something on the outside, right? Now imagine with me if we had on this uh, box, we had a, a big bucket of uh, metal shavings and we took a magnet and we stuck the magnet in and we moved it all around. What would happen to those metal shavings? They would, they would stick to the magnet. In fact, if I move the magnet, the metal shavings wouldn't drop. Why? Because there is an invisible bond that's tying those uh, metal shavings to the magnet. My friends, that is the picture of the unity that God wants to give his church. That as brothers and sisters in Christ, we are united. We, are, uh, we have an invisible bond through the Holy Spirit. And that he unifies us. That's why we're called to keep the unity of the spirit, but we're not called to create it because that's what God does for his church. But what do we do when this unity is under attack? Listen, unity is so powerful that even if you're going in the wrong direction and you're unified, you're gonna get there. 
Do you guys remember the story of the Tower of Babel? Right? All the nations were in rebellion against God. God said, hey, listen, fill the earth and subdue it. They said, forget that. We're all going to stay together and we're going to build a tower in our own name. And they all spoke the same language. So what did the Lord do? The Lord came down. The Lord uh, confused their languages. And then all of a sudden they, they couldn't talk or communicate and they began to spread. My point is we in the church... We in our families, we in our marriages, we need to make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. But what do we do when this unity is under attack? Because that was exactly what was happening at the church in Philippi. Now you guys probably know the story if you've read Acts 15 and 16. Here's the story, the behind the scenes of how the the origin story, for lack of a better word, of the church in Philippi. So Paul and Barnabas, they were missionary buddies. They began to travel together, but they had a disagreement. They had an argument. One of their friends was uh, John, who was also called Mark. And at a previous time, Mark completely deserted them when they were on a missions trip. So when they were about to go again, Paul was like, I don't want Mark to come with us. And Barnabas was like, no, 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 we, we need to bring Mark in. So they had a disagreement. So what they decided to do was Barnabas took Mark and Paul took Silas. So Paul had this dream, this vision from heaven that there was a man from Macedonia who was telling him to come. And so he and Silas begin to go to the city of Philippi. And they go down to the river there and there's these women there and they share the gospel and the Lord opens up their hearts and Lydia gets saved and that's the beginning of the church in Philippi. And then if you read the story a little bit more in Acts 16, as Paul and Silas were traveling through Philippi, there was this slave girl that was demon possessed. And so because she was possessed by this demon, she was able to tell the fortunes of other people. And so what would happen is her owners would have her tell other people's fortunes and then they would get money. But as Paul and Silas were traveling, this, this girl was so annoying, so annoying that Paul just had to cast the demon out of her. How many of you know some annoying people in your life? How many of you are already thinking about your Thanksgiving plans, right? There might be a few people around that table that might need a demon cast out of them. But nevertheless, that's what happened in the story. And so the demon was cast out, which was great for the girl, but it was bad for the owners. You know why it was bad for the owners? Because now they lost money. Now she couldn't read people's fortunes. So what did they do? They decided to throw Paul and Silas into prison. You guys remember the story? Paul and Silas in prison. It was in the middle of the night and they were singing praises to God. Absolutely incredible. I mean, in America today, we have enough trouble getting people together to sing on Sunday mornings between 10 and 12. And yet in a prison cell in the middle of the night, they were singing praises to God. And what happened? The earth begins to shake. All of the prison doors begin to bust open. The guard there sees all the doors open. He thinks that everybody's left. And what does he do? He's about to take his own life. Right before he takes his own life, Paul's like, no, no, don't. We're all here. So the jailer goes to Paul and Silas and brings them in. He hears the gospel, gets saved. All of his family gets saved. And that, my friends, is the beginning of the church in Philippi. 
Now the church in Philippi had a special relationship for Paul. They loved Paul. So on all of Paul's missionary journeys, the church in Philippi wanted to support them. And so when Paul is writing this letter, do you remember where he's writing this letter from? He's writing this letter from prison. How many of you would agree that some of the best letters come from prison? So when Paul was in prison, some of the members of the church in Philippi come and visit them, and they're catching up. And they're telling Paul everything that's happening back home at the church in Philippi. And as they're telling the story, Paul is getting more concerned and concerned. Because the church in Philippi had a problem. They had problems on the outside and they had problems on the inside. Now, how many of you have ever heard of the name Alexander the Great? Right? He was a military leader, conquered most of the Greek, uh, known Greek world at that time. Well, Alexander's dad was named Philip of Macedonia. In fact, the city of Philippi was named after Philip of Macedonia. And so what would happen is in the Roman army, if you served in the Roman army, when you were done with your service, they would give you a piece of land. But rather than giving you a piece of land in Rome, they would send you out and you got a little piece of land in Philippi. So the people in Philippi, they were patriotic. These were people that had fought for Rome. These were people that, that they loved their country. And if you were in Rome at that time, what they would say is that Caesar is Lord. But when Paul began to preach and when the church in Philippi began to preach, they didn't say that Caesar is Lord. They said that Jesus is Lord. So what do you think happened to the church? They began to experience waves of persecution, right? They began to persecute the church in Philippi. So they had these problems coming from them on the outside, but that wasn't the only thing. Now I'm about to say something and I want to caution and give you a warning so that you can brace yourself. Because what I'm about to say is gonna be so shocking, so unbelievable that you're not gonna believe it, but it's true, okay? There were people in the church in Philippi, are you ready? They did not get along with each other. Shocking, right? Can you imagine people in church not getting along with each other? Can you imagine people in church having different opinions? Can you imagine people in the church talking behind one another's backs? No. No, maybe just a little. And so what was happening is the church in Philippi had persecution on the outside and the people in the church weren't getting along on the inside. Because these uh, waves of difficulty were coming from both directions at the same time, it had the setup to tear down the church. Now for Paul, Paul knew that people needed to hear the gospel of Jesus. And for Paul, the best way for that to happen would be a community of people together practicing the way of Jesus, announcing the gospel. He believed in the church. And Paul knew that the unity of the church was under threat. And that if the church lost its unity, it could go out. So what happened? Paul began to write. And isn't it true in our lives today? Think about this. In our families, in our marriages, in our relationships, it's one thing if we have trouble from the outside and that's it. 
Because if we have trouble coming from the outside, if it's financial trouble or job trouble, but our relationships are good, then we can stand together and we can face the difficulty coming from the outside. And if it's peaceful on the outside, that gives us space to turn in and work through the difficulties that we're experiencing in our relationships. But what happens when you have pressure coming from both sides at the same time? At that point, things begin to break. So what happened? Paul in prison. Think about Paul. Paul's a man of action. He's got people that he absolutely loves and there is nothing he can do. So what does he do? He, he begins to write this letter. Now, in Paul's mind, he's thinking about the people that he loves in Philippi. But something happens as he begins to write. The Holy Spirit comes upon him. And in Paul's mind, he's thinking about Philippi. But in the Holy Spirit's mind, he's thinking about God's people throughout all generations. He's thinking about you and he's thinking about me. And in his letter, he's writing to us to show us, listen, how do we get through difficult times? How do we get through seasons of difficulty when there's pressure on the outside and inside? And that's what we find. So that's the story behind the letter we're going to open up today. So in Philippians chapter 1, we're going to begin at verse 27. Philippians 1 verse 27, this is what the scripture says. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence... I will know that you stand firm. Somebody say stand firm. In one spirit, striving together. Somebody say striving together. As one for the faith of the gospel. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This will be a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved. And that by God, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ... To not only believe in him, but to also suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw that I had, and now hear that I still have. Right? How do we get through difficult times? What should we do? If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. What should we do? What's the first thing we need to do? Number one, we need to be united in our suffering. We need to be united in our suffering. Now, when Paul's writing this, he shares two word pictures to help this come alive uh, for the church in Philippi. Two pictures to help you and I understand what he's talking about. The first one, and they're found in verse 27. Look at that phrase, stand firm. Somebody say, stand firm. In Greek, that's the word stako. It's a military term. It's a picture of an army standing firm. They're holding their ground. And guess what? They're standing together. Right? Now imagine with me if you're in an army, right? And you have been tasked to take the hill. And there's enemy combatants on top of the hill. And you're running up the hill to take the hill. And at the same time, you look down and your fellow soldiers are firing at you as well. You've got fire coming from up top and you've got friendly fire coming from behind. How many of you think you're going to make it? Not going to make it. I'm curious, how many of you in this room have served in the military? Would you raise your hand? Can we give them a hand? 
Thank you so much for serving. So I personally have never served in the military. However, I have had many campaigns of Call of Duty. <laughs> many sleepless nights and thankless opportunities. Just kidding. But what I realized from my friends that have served in the military, they, there's, this, there's this bond that they have with the people that they serve with. There's this brotherhood. There's this sister. There's this ability that says, hey, I've got your back. And listen, they're not talking behind your back. They're saying, hey, I've got your back. Right? Think about this. Like, what is that mindset, right? When disaster comes, people run. Most people run away from the disaster. But there are few because of their um, specific skill set and specialized training that they, they run toward it rather than away from it. And what Paul is saying is as Christians, you and I, there has to be something different about us. That we are united with one another in their struggle. That we are, as if it were, brothers in arms. That we are holding our ground, standing next to each other. That we're not saying, I'm not going to talk behind your back, but rather I've got your back. We're going to stand together. We're not going to fight against each other. But together we're going to fight against the enemy, right? So we've got to stand by that. But there's a second word picture that Paul gives. Not only is it to stand firm, but also in verse 27, it is striving together. Striving together. Now, in Greek, it literally means with athletics. With athletics. How many of you have ever played team sports? How many of you have ever played individual sports? How many of you have ever had somebody on a team sport that had an individual sport mindset? Right? There is a difference between baseball and golf, right? And so what Paul is saying, hey, we as the church, we're on the same team. Now imagine with me if you were a running back and you were given the ball and you've got to run across the field, right? Run down the field. You got the opposing team coming after you, right? That's hard enough as it is. And what if your own team, rather than blocking for you, turned and started chasing you as well? What chance would you have? And so it is when we've got pressure from the outside and pressure from the inside. We, we need to be like a team. We need to realize that we are on the same team, striving together for the same goal that we're not opponents, but rather together we face against the opponents coming after us. We've got to have that picture. So the question then becomes, what position do we take? When people in our lives are going through suffering, many of us, if we're honest, we're wired to just, just leave, right? We distance ourselves from people who are going through difficulty. Why? Because it's not convenient for us. That's not how Jesus wants us to live. But there's also another position that's equally problematic. That rather than standing with, sometimes many of us, we try to overfunction for people, right? We try to make other people's problems and, and try to fix them ourselves. Sometimes we care more about the solution than the person in the actual problem. And that doesn't work as well. You guys have all seen parents, right? 
Parents who love their kids and out of a desire to, to love their kids, they end up doing everything for them. That's not helpful. That's actually hurtful. Why? Because they need to learn to develop on their own, right? And so in the same way, we need to be united with those in their suffering. Not by over-functioning and taking their problems on ourselves. Not by leaving away, but rather by standing with them. As if we were in the military standing side by side. Or as if we were on the same team striving together, right? But I know what you're, I know what you're saying. Pastor Andrew, that is a great idea. It sounds great. But how are we going to do it? How do we actually do that? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked that question. Why? Because the Bible actually gives us the answer to the question. How do we do it? If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Secondly, we need to be united through serving. United through serving. We see this in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2 says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in in humility, value others above yourselves not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Do you guys notice the shift? Do you guys see that we've got to move from thinking all about me to thinking about other people, right? There's this shift that happens. Now, let's go back to that analogy of sports. How many of you have played baseball? Raise your hand. Okay, keep your hand up. Keep your hand up. Because here's my second question. For those of you that have played baseball, how many of you also play golf? Okay, a few of you. There is nothing I love more than watching somebody who's played baseball for years begin to learn to play golf. Right? So in baseball, you use a bat. And you grip the bat a particular way. But in golf, you don't use a bat, you use a club. And that club requires a different kind of grip. Here's my point. A different game requires a different grip. For many of us, we've been playing a game our whole lives. We are inherently selfish. And we're good at it. We've been practicing forever. We think about ourselves. We think about what we want, what we need. We think about how we can manipulate others to our our own advantage. That's the game we've been playing. And it's been all about me. But as Christians, if we're going to follow Christ, there's got to be a shift that happens where we move from it's all about me to we, to realizing, wait a minute, things have got to change. So because the game has changed, our grip, the way we approach it, has to change. And we have got to, I love what it says, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. Absolutely amazing. And the question is, how do we do that, right? How do we do that? How do we change it? Look at what it says in verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. How are we going to do it? We've got to have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. 
What was that mindset? Look at verse 6. Who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Think about this. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He was God. He had every right and he was entitled to all of the rights of his divinity, but rather he didn't use his own rights for his own advantage. So what did he do? Look at verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you and I, if we're going to serve one another, we have to have the same mindset and attitude that Jesus had. Now, how many musicians are in the room? Okay, imagine with me that you're a musician and you walk into a room and in this room there are 100 guitars. And your job is to make sure that all 100 of these guitars are in tune. So what do you do is you, you take the first guitar and you take out your tuner and you tune the guitar to the tuner. But what if for the second guitar you put the tuner down and you tuned the second guitar to the first guitar? And then you tuned the third guitar to the second and the fifth to the fourth. And you did that all the way till you got to the 100th guitar. Do you think that the 100th guitar would be in tune? Absolutely not, right? Not at all. If you wanted to make sure that they were all in tune, what would you need to do? You would need to take each guitar one at a time and you would need to tune it to the tuner. And in the same way, many of us in our lives, we look at our relationships and we tune our lives to other people. Well, I'm not as bad as that, or wait a minute, he's not going the extra mile to serve me, so I'm not going to serve him, or, right? And what happens when we begin to tune our lives to others, we're out of tune, we're out of sync, it doesn't sound good. But my friends, we have a tuner. We have God's word, and through God's word, we can look at Jesus. And we have got to keep our eyes on Jesus. We've got to model our lives after Jesus. And what did Jesus do? The scripture says that the Son of Man did not come to be served. Rather, he came to serve others. Do you remember the story? The night before Jesus died, the night before or hours before, one of the most difficult moments when he was crucified and went to the cross, Jesus with his disciples, he's in the room. And what does he do? He takes the towel. He wraps it around his waist. He gets on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet. That's Jesus. And if you and I are called to follow the crucified Christ, what makes you think that we are not called to serve others? Amen. We need to have that mindset. If we're going to be united in our struggle, united in our suffering, the only way to do that is to get our mind off of ourselves and begin to serve one another like Jesus Christ served one another. 
Because in doing so, we become united. So then the question becomes, if, that's, if we're supposed to be united in our suffering, and we do that by being united through serving, what's the point of it all, right? Why should we do this? I'm glad you asked that question. Point number three, why should we do this? We need to be united for the purpose of shining. We need to be united for the purpose of shining. Look at verse 12. It says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out. Somebody say work out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in, somebody say works in, you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purposes. Let's stop right there. Right? Two phrases, work out and work in. God is working in you. Now the best way to understand the word you is to use the Texas translation. You know what the Texas translation is? Y'all. Right? Because it's plural. It's not, I mean, it is true that God is working you individually, but Paul is talking to the church. Paul is essentially saying, hey, God is working in y'all. And y'all got to work it out with fear and trembling, right? See, working in and working out. Unity is a group project. Unity is a group project. And a lot of times we get this order mixed up. We try to take it upon ourselves to work in us, and we want God to work everything out in our lives. Have you ever tried that? You're like, man, if only I had more willpower. If only I was a little bit more faithful or a little bit more self-disciplined, right? Oh, if I just try harder next week, right? And then we make these promises to God. God, I'm never going to do it again. God, I'm going to serve you always, right? That's Monday morning, Monday by lunchtime. We've blown it, <laughs> right? Listen, let me free you up. You cannot change your life. God can change your life. So what does God do when God works in you? Number one, he gives you the ability, and secondly, he gives you the opportunity. And then what are we called to do? What's our responsibility? We're called to work that out in our lives. Have you ever prayed for patience? And you wonder why there's opportunity after opportunity to exercise patience. Well, that's what God's doing. God, you have the ability because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, Right? And you have an opportunity, but you're the one that has to, in obedience and in faith, step out and work it out. Right? Unity is a group project. So we got to work it out. And do you know the one, well, actually there's many things, but one of the things that really destroys unity more than anything else, it's grumbling and it's complaining. Look at verse 14. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Have you ever been on a road trip? Right? And you've been so frustrated, right? You're on this road trip and you're so frustrated, and then it's like, ugh, pumpernickel. What? That's, that's not the word you use? <laughs> to be honest, I can't say the word you probably use in church, right? But when we're grumbling and we're complaining and we're arguing, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of the people of Israel when they left Egypt and they were going to the promised land. 
You know, that trip should have been an 11-day journey. Do you know how long that trip was for them? 40 years. If you're going through a difficult time and you want to become even more miserable, complain and argue. If you want to stretch it out. And but listen, there's a difference between complaining and arguing and being honest, right? God wants us to be honest with situations in our life. We are not called to have perspective diabetes. Do you know what perspective diabetes is? It's when you sugarcoat things so much so that you're not honest with how they are and it's actually unhealthy for you, right? That's not good either. And at the same time, there's a difference between being honest, okay, things aren't good right now, to complaining, oh man, things have never been worse. Do you guys feel that? Like the energy that we give to that, do everything without complaining or arguing, right? Why? What are we called to do? Look at this next verse, verse 15. Why? So that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. When we go through difficult times and we stand with each other rather than against each other and the posture we take isn't one that's all about me, but rather we've come to serve. When we model Jesus like that, what happens is we begin to shine. Have you guys ever been out camping, right? Away from the city, away from all the the busyness and the noise. And you look up into the sky. What do you see? Here's a picture. It's a beautiful picture, right? Uh, A sky that is just lit up with stars. Now, this picture wasn't taken in Los Angeles. They get in Yosemite. But these stars, the Bible says that you and I will shine like stars when we hold firmly to the word of life. I love stars. And I've noticed a few things about stars. Number one, I've noticed that you only see stars at night when things are dark. Right? If you and I walk out of this building right now and we look up to the heavens, we're not gonna, we're not gonna see stars. Why? The sun is out. It's It's bright, but tonight the sun is going to set and it's going to get really, really dark. And when we look up, we're going to be able to see that there's these stars. And so it is in my life and in your life. When we go through difficult situations and we hold firmly to the word of life, we're going to shine like the stars. Now, if you look up in the sky and you see one star, it's absolutely amazing. But you know what's more amazing than one star? A sky that is filled with stars, that is just lit up. If you've ever been in that place where you've been away from the city lights, away from all the noise and chaos out there, and you look up and you just see the sky just littered with stars everywhere, what does that make you want to do? Makes you want to praise the Lord. It's glorious. It's magnificent. And in the same way, 
when the world sees God's people standing with each other and serving one another as we go through difficult times, we are shining like the stars in the heavens. And people are praising God as a result. And you know, back in the day before they had GPS systems, right, and those old uh, wooden ships, you know what they would use to guide through the night? They would use the stars in the sky. Could it be that God wants you to shine like stars so that those in your life who do not know Jesus could be guided and pointed toward Jesus? Because it's Jesus alone. You know, tonight when the sun goes down, if you look up, you're going to see the moon. You know why I love the moon? It's a, I love that illustration that in the middle of the night, the moon is shining. But you know, the moon doesn't shine itself. It reflects the light from the sun. And so in your life and in my life, it's not as if we have any ability in and of ourselves to shine. No, no, no. Our lives are a reflection of Jesus. Listen, I know myself. I'm not shining. <laughs> I know most of you. Right? It's Jesus that we want to reflect. It's his attitude, it's his love, it's his posture, right? So that people would glorify God. You know, as we, as we close this message this morning, I want to close with a story. It's a beautiful story of an art exhibit that they had on display. In fact, Time Magazine did uh, an article years ago on this, muse uh, on this display, and this display had four particular paintings. And then at the very last painting, on the fourth painting, underneath it, there was one single sentence. Let me share it with you. The, the first painting was a picture of a, of a house in the middle of this giant wheat field. And on the porch of this house, there was a father, a mother, and a young boy. That was painting number one. Painting number two, you see that in this wheat field, the little boy had gone to play and he had gotten lost. So he's way, way down in the corner and he's trying to find his way back and he's lost. Then on the other side, you see the father in the middle of the wheat field and he's looking for his son. He's looking for where he is. And you see the mother on the porch in tears as the sun is setting and the night is coming. The third picture you see is of the next day. See, the father knew he couldn't find his son by himself, so he went out to the, to the neighboring houses and his neighbors to gather them together. And the reason why he didn't gather before is because they were in conflict. But he was at a point where he needed help. So this third painting was a picture of the community standing together, hand in hand, arm in arm, walking together through the wheat field in order to find the little boy. And then the fourth and final painting was a painting of the father and the mother in tears standing over the body of their little boy 
And the caption underneath the painting said this, Oh God, if only we would have joined hands sooner. Can I tell you, church, it is time for us to join hands. It's time for us to join hands as a church community. It is time for us to join hands as a families. It's time for us to join hands in our marriages. We've got to realize we can't fight each other. We've got to stand side by side. We've got to realize that we're not in opposition. We're on the same team. Right? We need to be united in our suffering. How do we do that? By serving. Right? The game has changed. We've been living our lives for our own advantage. But when we come to Christ, we lay that down. And we pick up the mindset of Jesus that I have not come so everybody can serve me. I've come like my master to serve others. The son of man did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to offer his life as a ransom for many. We need that. And you know what will happen if we do? As God's people, we will shine like the stars in the sky. And those who don't know Jesus will be pointed to Jesus. And that's what we want. Would you stand with me? I want to read a verse and pray as we close. And as you're standing, I want to invite you to grab the hand of the person next to you. And if you're on the aisles, you can bridge the aisles. I just want to read this one verse and share this prayer. This verse is found in Romans chapter 15, verses 5 and 6. And I want to pray this verse over you. This is what the scripture says. May the God who gives you endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would unify your church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.